0: I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White.
1: I'm Angelie Preston.
2: We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented
3: communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths.
0: What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity,
2: and the common concerns of Buffalo's east side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children.
0: I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and today I'm welcoming back to the program, Will Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education. And he's also the owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions, LLC. Will, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm happy to be back here. It's been a while. Yeah, A lot has been happening. (laughs) A lot has been happening. We're going to get into that. Um, You are a Buffalonian, born and raised on the east side. Um, Just tell me a little
3: bit about what life was like for you growing up. Uh, So, you know, i tell you what. I think Buffalo... People from Buffalo got heart. <laughs> I don't care what people say. We got heart. Uh, one thing I remember. So I went to school 53. Uh-huh. Um, my father grew up on Glenwood. That was the house that I went to after school. That was a neighborhood, Cold Spring, that I hung out in uh, after school and before school, but also on the weekends. And I remember, you know, block parties. Um, I remember elders in the community sitting on the porch. I remember having respect for those elders. I remember, you know, the friendships that were formed, going to school 53 from kindergarten to eighth grade. Um, I just have great memories of being in the community, running around in the summers, playing sports. It was a good time. Have we lost some of that on the east side?
0: Are the elders still out on the porches? Are they? Do they have the
3: ears and eyes of the neighborhood? Well, so it's funny because I guess, <laughs> you know, I'm almost an elder, right? I'll be 50 in February. Wow. Um. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We, uh,
3: our listeners cannot see you right now, but you look about 32. Well, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. My knees disagree, but, you know, I'll take that. So, but seriously, though, I think that people my age and older are still concerned about the community, mm-hmm. but- And I don't know if this is just a natural consequence of technology, but you see fewer and fewer people outside involved. You know, I remember you could go on any street any day in the summer and there would be kids outside playing football, sports, double dutch, drilling, skating in the streets. I don't see that anymore. I don't see a lot of that anymore. And not just on the east side of Buffalo, but all over the city. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know what the reason is, but I know that elders in the community who are still on the east side of Buffalo are still concerned. They still have an eye out, but there's definitely this gap between older folks and younger folks in the lines of communication. Talk to me a little bit about
0: black culture in Buffalo. You said you said the city, people in the city got heart. Um, what's specifically about Buffalo's
3: black culture do you like do you love find beautiful so I'll say this right because you know I didn't experience other people from different communities until I went to college so and I went to Alpha University um you know as downstate southern Mm -hmm. tier probably about two hours away but I had an opportunity to meet people from Rochester and New York City and these other areas across New York State. And one thing I'll say is that, you know, the people from Buffalo, we weren't afraid to talk. We weren't afraid to approach other people. We Mm -hmm. had outgoing spirits, and most of the time we were the ones to kind of start things we were the ones to get the party going yeah um we had kind of like this zest for life and i don't know if it's because you know winter time comes we locked down (laughs) for the whole winter (laughs) and then when we get outside we ready to go but it was just definitely something different about people from buffalo even when you compare it to new york city you know um i love my folks from new york and shout out to the people in the bronx who were pivotal friends while i went to college, but. Buffalo, we brought a little bit of street, but also a little bit of the book smarts too, so we were versatile. We could adapt, and I think you know that's something that's specific to Buffalo as well when you look at you know what has happened to black residents. Mhm, so
0: it wasn't much of a culture shock for you going to when you
3: went to college absolutely <laughs> it was <laughs> oh yeah, it was a culture shock. I mean, so going to school fifty three Uh, From kindergarten to eighth grade, having a black principal, Nan Woods, shout out to Nan Woods, 5'3 High, um, having black teachers, having a school that was extremely connected to my grandparents and my father, and the communication was back and forth. So then I go to Hutch Tech High School, mm-hmm. which probably had, we went I went from 95% African-American population at 53 to 15% at Hutch Tech. I think there were two African-American teachers, no African-American administrators, and it was a difficult transition, but it prepared me to go to Alfred University where I didn't have the type of supports that I had in K-8, um, but also there was the community culture shock of going from my neighborhood to a pretty much, you know, rural area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was just, it took some getting used to, but like I said, you know, we Buffalo, we figured out a way to adapt. I was blessed to have a number of friends from Hutch Tech come to Alva University as well. And that probably eased the transition, but it was still a culture shock. It was still something to deal right.
0: with. you mentioned, just going from uh what is it PS uh fifty three?
3: Public school fifty three community Public, school fifty three yeah
0: to mm-hmm. uh Hutch Tech and that kind of lack of support talk to me about the importance of having black administrators, black teachers, uh in these classrooms.
3: Yeah. Well I'll say this, right? So at school fifty three We had good teachers. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is, and this is something that I kind of replay in my mind now as an adult, because some of my friends did not go to school 53 and they didn't have that type of experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So a good teacher is what matters most. Now, going to a Hutch Tech and not seeing that representation I still had this, and this is another thing about growing up in that time. You respected adults. You respected teachers. 100%. Now, what I'll say happened during that time is because of the adverse experiences I had with teachers and administrators at Hutch Tech, I felt like they didn't respect me, so I didn't respect them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was the difference. So I can't really say, oh, it was because they weren't black. We had some black teachers and I had good relationships with them. Um, I just think a lot of them weren't good teachers or good administrators.
0: Mm, Okay, that's that's certainly a fair point. Um, We had talked a little earlier about um, confusion. Some people have confusion about what it means to be black and living on the east side you want to dispel some of those uh those uh you know rumors and 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 just you know talk, talk to me about that
3: i mean i think so it's stereotype we stereotype right, people, right. right we stereotype people and i've probably experienced this all throughout my professional career the one thing i will say is this going back to your last question about the benefit of having black teachers and black administrators mm-hmm. when i enrolled in college and switched over to education as a major i didn't miss a beat it, okay. it, it didn't seem far-fetched for me to be an educator because i saw that you know um now Shifting over to this question about the misconceptions, the stereotypes. Yeah. As a professional, um, I've worked in schools. We know that less than 2% of the teaching population in America are black males. So most of the schools or most of my experiences, I'm one of few. Um Especially as I ascended through the ranks and started to work in the administrative offices of organizations or even on college campuses. So it's interesting because, number one, there's been this shift in how we show up for work, right? When we, we talk about being authentic. Mm-hmm. And some days I don't feel like putting on a tie. <laughs> with a collared shirt <laughs> some days you know i might have a polo on with a sweater hoodie or something like that and i may wear sneakers not shoes mm-hmm. and i'll tell you this it, it's i don't really know how to feel about it because it certainly still bo- still bothers me but walking across campus and you turn the corner and you meet someone you know how you turn the corner you don't know someone else turning yep. you could literally see the shock in their face of like, oh <laughs> you know so it's It's one of those things where it doesn't bother me, but it's also something that I recognize is because you're not used to seeing people like me in this space. And then, of course, the next question is, well, where would you be comfortable seeing me? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. where would you be comfortable seeing me? And I think if we started to explore that and talk about that, those are some places that are not fully representative of the entire black experience. How do you navigate those waters or how do you navigate those waters initially? Whew. Now, that's a deep question because that's something I think that started at Hutch Tech. Um, uh-huh. And I mentioned this, I think, the last time I was here. I remember vocally saying out loud to myself, why don't they like me? Mm. So as a child, you know, 14, you're still a child. Yep. It's, it's acceptance. I just want to be accepted. And I went from high-performing, always pick to do this and that star student to the student that's saying out loud to himself why don't they like me so i think as you're beginning to develop an identity and want to fit in then this realization of wait a minute i'm not fitting in and and what's the problem is it me but as i began to mature and develop into who i was and having a strong foundation of having strong black role models and started to look a little bit into history, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's not me. It's how they perceive me based on how I look. And that then it became a challenge. Then it became a challenge of, okay, you perceive me like this, but I've always been a high performing student. I can read very well. I can retain information very well. I can speak very well. I'm going to beat you at your own game and watch how you just crumble under mm. how I beat you at your own game. It just <laughs> became a challenge. It just okay. became something that I wanted to conquer and excel and do well in. Chip on your shoulder. uh, To a certain extent because, you know, you know you can't wear that chip on your shoulder. Right. You know, you right. can't if you, you can, wear that yes. chip on your shoulder, then you show on your hand. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's still you come in, you know, you observe people, how they can navigate systems. You can't do much about how people perceive you. I played football in college. I I came with the, you know, the baggage that people who play sports come with. Oh, dumb jock, whatever. Right. right. And I would love that setup. (laughs) I would love that setup. I'll stay very, very quiet as long as I can. And as soon as I get the opportunity to speak, I just wait for the, draws, the jaws to drop <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then turn it on them. and am like, OK, let's see where you at. You know,
0: uh, you mentioned um, with trying to navigate these waters that you were looking at history. What 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 specifically were you uh, studying or just getting into?
3: So, you know. And it's a journey, right, I think, especially for black people in America, because there's the information that you are provided in school that you have access to. Mm-hmm. And then there's a much greater wealth of information in our communities with historical knowledge from people, but also our own libraries, where it's this deeper information beyond a topical. So, of course, at School 53, you know, traditionally Martin Luther King, I remember early on, you know, and celebrating martin luther king we're playing stevie wonders happy birthday to you yep. <laughs> you know um on the loudspeaker i remember in our um you know every community event we had at 53 we sung lift every voice and sing and i knew that that was the black national anthem you know i'm sorry go ahead repeat the question again i just want to get back to it i know oh, what
0: what what history were you looking into uh, while, while trying to navigate the waters
3: yeah okay so it was it was very traditional it was very traditional. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, Civil Rights Movement, Rosa Parks. Um, but I'll tell you, there was an incident in high school, and I'm going to share this here, and I don't think I've ever Please do. shared this um, much of anywhere besides personal spaces. I probably shared it with some educators. Uh, I remember, now, I'll tell you, once I got to Hush I just became turned off by education um, uh-huh. and, and the way it was set up. And I was the type of student where... I knew exactly what I needed to do to get by, and that was the most I was going to give. Um, didn't have a lot, a lot of motivation in high school, and I felt no desire or need to listen to the teachers that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, You know, a lot of it turned out to be adversarial. Not all of them, but right. most of them. Either it was adversarial or it was complete ignoring. So, as a teenager, okay, y'all not going to challenge me? I, you know, I could do this work. Tomorrow and get the score that I need to get. Uh I remember in a classroom, I'm going to put this teacher on blast, social studies. His name was Mr. Argello. (laughs) Mr. Argello, if you're out there, I hope you're listening. If you're not, (laughs) God take care of you. (laughs) I was in the class, had my head down, turned off. Social studies was one of those classes I did not need to pay attention to in the class. I could pass the test the night before or by studying the night before.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Had my uh, head down. And I remember there was another student in the class who at the time, I believe he was Muslim, but I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't know anything about what folks would call the radical side of the, you know, black history. Right. And I don't know what they were talking about. But I remember that this student said, well, what about Malcolm X? And I heard Mr. Agelo The teacher, we were probably sophomores, what, 15 years old? This is a grown man with a room full of kids, yelled out and said, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad were N-words. Wow. Now, I immediately lifted my head up because I'm like, what? Did he just say that? And I'm like, okay. Now, I was embarrassed, too, because I knew the meaning of an N-word. Yeah, but I didn't know who Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad were. Mm. And as a kid, in your head, you're like, okay, what am I doing with this? Now, I don't remember what came of that. The teacher didn't get fired. He was still there. I shared this story with some other people who went to Hutch Tech, and they said, oh, yeah, he was a real jerk or whatever. And that put a spark in me. That put a spark in me to start to figure out who these people were, and I think at the time, that's when Spike Lee did the Malcolm X movie. And that kinda started that journey. Um, And it started in high school, just reading more, learning more about the history of black people, learning more about Malcolm X, and then in college, going to a predominantly white institution, We had access to other speakers through – because I was an EOP student. Shout-out to the EOP students. (laughs) Shout-out to – yeah, shout-out to Marita Marita (laughs) Daniels. She was the director. Um, And they would put together programs, and they would bring in guest speakers. We would go see other speakers, Sister Uh Soldier, And it just opened my mind up even more to a history that I'm like, why wasn't school built around this? Because then I'm like, oh, this would have gave me a much stronger purpose. It's it's amazing what a
0: gateway Malcolm X is to other black radicals who came either before him or after him. Um would you say Buffalo Public Schools fostered your love of education? Obviously, you had some up and downs. Uh, At Hutch Tech, but like overall, was that, was it, was your love for education and wanting to teach
3: fostered with Buffalo Public Schools? So I'll tell you this at school 53, and this is a part of the stereotypes, right? Uh huh. At school 53, we were competitive academically. So I remember getting report cards and my fellow classmates are like, what did you get? What did you get? What did you get? What did you get? Mm-hmm. You know, so we were academically competitive. We did love to learn. We love to read in class out loud. We love to demonstrate what we knew. We love to support each other. So I would say my love for learning was certainly fostered at public school 53, um, which is a Buffalo public school. I, I got to give a shout out to my mother though, um, because you know, I was an avid reader at a young age, you know, and my mother was a reader. Um, and we always had the world book encyclopedias, you know, the, the expensive edition, <laughs> because not only did we have the encyclopedias, we had the year in science, the year in world history. I mean, and I used to read all of those things from front to back. So my mother played a role in that, but it certainly was uh, fostered and encouraged at school 53.
0: Speaking of mothers, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't uh, give my mother, who you know, Mm -hmm. uh, a very happy birthday. Happy birthday, mom. I love you. I will see you later. Happy Uh birthday. (laughs) (laughs) What was your favorite class growing up and why?
3: Man, my favorite class. That is a good question. I mean, I (laughs) love (laughs) Jim. Don't we all? I love Jim. You know what I got to say? And I never you know, I never thought of schools and academics as like a favorite. You know, it was something you had to do. Yeah. yeah, You know, and I had I think it was mostly teacher based. Right. Mm -hmm. So because there were classes where I I liked English, I did like English, but sometimes I would have an English teacher. that I'm like, I don't like English. You know, they just they didn't do it for me. Right. And I would I did not like math, but then I have a math teacher that was just so into it and made the lessons so engaging that I came to enjoy it. Um, I didn't necessarily have a favorite subject. It was mostly about a teacher creating a space that made learning fun. Now, that's that was my thing, because my brain would move so fast just sitting down and taking notes wouldn't do it for me i could do that at home by myself Uh uh-huh you know i like the engaging teachers who made any subject engaging what are your feelings on homework (laughs) should it be abolished (laughs) so here's the thing right you can't it's very difficult difficult to take one piece of a system and change it absolutely without changing the other parts of the system okay so there are a lot of teachers who rely on homework to reinforce skills that they don't have the time to reinforce in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I get that. But then you have students at home without the help of the classroom instructor trying to practice skills that they haven't fully mastered in the classroom. That makes it extremely difficult and it stresses parents out because a lot of parents have had negative experiences in school mm-hmm. or don't have that particular skill set to support students with that work. But so I understand the need for it in some spaces, but I think that you heard me talk about it being engaging. I think what we end up doing with a lot of the homework that students have now is it takes the joy out of learning and it's super just repetitive and rote and it doesn't inspire students to want to do it. There's a whole world out there that students are interacting with and What I see in most homework assignments, it takes students completely away from that world and- Do four
0: pages out of this book.
3: Yes, exactly. There's no real engagement Mm -hmm. with the work in a way that speaks to how students are learning in diverse ways or engaging the world in diverse ways. So I guess my point is, if it's homework that can be engaging and can speak to students and how they interact with the world, I'm all for it. They should be learning at all points of time in the day. But if it's that, do these work and yeah, stuff like that. And the yeah. answer's in the back of the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know how well that's going to help students.
0: You're listening to What's Next? Thomas O'Neill White here with the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education, an owner and operator of Tremani Solutions LLC. Will Green, We will be back just after this.
1: Did you know that WNED PBS is always working on great new local shows for you to watch? Documentaries like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, which tells the story of Buffalo's music hall. The hall is very intimate,
2: and that intimacy makes everyone who comes in here feel a part of our family.
1: Fun and educational series like Compact Science. Believe it or not, Peppers are technically fruits. And Shakespeare's greatest hits featuring some of his best-known soliloquies and monologues. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. You can watch them all on our website at WNED.org slash local shows. While you're there, check out the show pages and many websites for additional content such as bonus features, photo galleries, and lesson plans. Find it all at WNED.org slash local shows.
2: Birds, whether common or rare, delight me. That's what our new Now We're Birding and Enjoying Nature Club is all about. Oh, yes, and the best is being with people who are also interested in wildflowers, animals, and, of course, birds. Come along with us, won't you? Peter Hall and me, Stratton Rawson, as we lead monthly excursions to Tift or Rhinestein Woods Nature Preserves. To sign up, go to WNED.org front slash birding.
1: Hi, I'm Christina. I love exploring the world around me and I have behind the scenes VIP tickets to some of the most exciting places and people in Western New York. And you can come along with me from wherever you are. Let's go! A new series you can watch on WNED PBS, the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel and on PBS Learning Media nationwide. So let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go.
2: You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using Next at wbfo.org. Together we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station.
0: And you're listening to What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White here with Will Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education, an owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions, LLC. Will, in your position at UB, you coordinate all facets of the Graduate School of Education's community engagement and outreach efforts. What type of strategic planning goes into those
3: efforts, and what gets you excited to achieve your goals? Um, Well, so the strategic plan for outreach and community engagement is actually embedded in the overall strategic plan for the Graduate School of Education. Uh, I believe it's uh, one of the second pillars or third pillar second or third pillar, and it is about engaging the community in ways that are mutually beneficial for the university and the Graduate School of Education, but also for the community. Um, So that does drive the work, especially with that notion of, um, I'll be honest, right? So traditionally when we look at communities like buffalo especially Mm -hmm. east side west side where you have kind of like disenfranchised populations Mm -hmm. universities have been seen as someone or institutions that come in and extract right they take out right and they don't build back so what we want to do is kind of undo that perception That we're just coming to take out information. We're going to do these things with you and take what we need in terms of research so we can get published and go on our way. And what we want to do is partner and collaborate with the community to build things to help sustain those communities, to make sure those communities still exist, but also to learn from community members like there's expertise in these communities and how can we find a way to share information from university level to community level and vice versa
0: so as someone representing UB how do you how do you get into those neighborhoods what what are some like of the specific things you do to make those connections so you know
3: luckily for me i'm from buffalo right <laughs> that um, always helps and yeah and you know buffalo I say Buffalo is uh, a town with a big city attitude, right? Uh-huh. So Buffalo's not that big. Let's be honest. No. I mean, every, <laughs> the, one of the things we like about Buffalo is 10, 15 minutes, you can get where you need to go. Exactly. All right. So having that type of access to communities is relatively simple. Uh, for me, coming from here, and I'm aware of, like, cultural norms across the town. Um, I've worked in Buffalo the majority of my professional career I've developed contacts through education working in a not-for-profit field Um, so all those things help but also I think what's most important is how people feel when you're around them right Mm -hmm. one of my goals and this is what I really try to share uh, with my colleagues at UB is like you know don't show up with your clipboard the first day Like, show up in the community as a community participant, Mm -hmm. right? Any event you go to, before you start talking about the work, before you start talking about what you'd like to do in the community, show up as a part of it. Show up as a listener. Learn from the people there. Endear yourself to them by being curious about what's happening, not in a stereotypical way, but in a way that, uplifts and upholds kind of the values of that community and showing that genuine curiosity and being supportive that's the that's the secret sauce right there showing up as a part of the community prior to doing the work and that
0: goes to my next question authenticity and and having that play a big role in your job and and trying to i guess as you say telling other people hey don't just don't just show
3: up get your hands a little dirty Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so funny, though, that, you know, in this moment in time, you know, authenticity is really uh, a, a a key buzzword. Right. Oh, right. we need to be authentic. And it, it, when you look at the history of black people, when were we able to be authentic? Right. So in order for me to. Share this information with folks, you know, being an educator, I think modeling is the best thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So traditionally. I would say someone with my background doesn't often end up at University at Buffalo, at University at Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means for me is when I sat in the interview, I made sure that this is my authentic self. This is what you're going to get. Like I'm not going to hide who I am for the purpose of you picking me.
4: Right. What I need
3: you to know is that if you pick me, this is the package that you will receive and you will get. So what that means is when I engage faculty and staff on University of Buffalo's campus, and I ingratiate to them that when we show up in communities, we need to be authentic, I'm being my authentic self. If I'm referencing something from my culture, I'm going to reference it from my culture. Now, if I need to translate for them, I will (laughs) unapologetically. I'll I'll go ahead and give you a translation, but I'll also tell them, you can't show up in the community and try and use the language that I use because that wouldn't be authentic, and Mm -hmm. they would identify that immediately. Right, but But you you need to understand it. Yes, you need to understand it, but you also need to show up as your authentic self. You can share things about your... Local, regional, uh, geographic, familial culture, and be ready to translate that for other people. And the one thing I know about my community is we like people who show up authentically. We won't judge you for being yourself. We might snicker and laugh a little bit at first, mm-hmm. but if you hold your ground and say, "Yo, this is who I am, mm-hmm. and this is who I'm gonna be," you get respect.
0: So there's really no there's really no difference between you in your role. AUB and the Will Green that's in the community in Buffalo's East Side community. But what about what about code switching? So
3: sometimes it's sometimes it's needed. Eh, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back against that. All right, I'm not code switching. I'm not going to cold switch. Now, the one thing that will shift is language, right? But that's a natural thing, right? If you go to Buffalo to New York City is the easiest one, right? So how often do you know somebody who grew up in Buffalo, lived in Buffalo, they go to New York City, they stay there for a year, year and a half, two years, they come back, and they got that New York talk car, right? (laughs) right? It's a natural thing that linguistically you start to shift if you're in an environment for a long time. So I do have the ability – to use language in a capacity that other folks can understand it when I get there. But the one thing I'm not doing, like I'm done with code switching. Like, okay. I had my code switching experience at Hutch Tech. I had my code switching experience early in my uh, college experience. And then I'm like, yo, you got to take me as I am. Um, and that's that's generally it. One thing I don't do is cuss a lot. <laughs> I cuss a lot more when I'm in the community at home being right. me. But no, but I I think code switching has not served us well as a community and as a nation. We talk about United States having all these diverse backgrounds and cultures, but then when the rubber meets the road and we go into business or in a professional world, Mm -hmm. we have to leave so much behind of who we are. Right. Well, what is that doing? That's stripping us of our advantage that we have of everywhere else where most other countries are homogenous societies. Yep. We have diversity of thought. So we're going to limit ourselves by saying, nope, you only show up this way, speak this way. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me.
0: Diversity, equity, and inclusion. We hear those words a lot. Some might say too often. Are they merely buzzwords now that companies use? And how do you in your position freshen those words up so they continue to retain their meaning?
3: So I think was interesting. So I've been, you know, I've been in the professional world for probably the last 30 years. And most of that time has been spent as an educator. My first, I would say, Job that was related to the degree that I was going for was in 1996. It was working with students, uh, Buffalo Federation uh, neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. BFNC, at a summer program and after school program um, as a tutor counselor. And I had a class full of 13 and 14 year olds. Um, And early on, I figured out that if you want respect, you got to give respect. And this might seem like a simplification, but when we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, that's a package that we give to people that don't get it. You know, that's for people who don't get it. Right. If you understand that what you have in front of you when you look at another person is something far greater than what their skin is, something far greater than how they speak, something far greater than socioeconomic status, it is a... Uh, camaraderie you have a fellow human being a sentient being who thinks and feels and loves and has all these emotions if you understand that you don't need the packaging of diversity equity and inclusion because you understand the power of connectivity among human beings the folks who don't get it need a package that we can put it in Mm -hmm. so that they can understand what it is i call it being human and it is been pervasive in the way that i've approached my work from the time i started working with students from diverse backgrounds from communities in which they've been impacted by decisions at higher levels treating people like humans with respect so that you can get it back and you know maybe 10 years from now we'll be calling dei work something else but i guarantee you if people don't see the humanity in others they're going to continually need a package and need a name to put it under so, it's still an important thing to have. Absolutely. I mean, because you got to have a ground level. There's right. so many people who have been able to escape and evade some of these concepts that you got to have a ground level to open up discussion. The unfortunate thing is, when you do put it in a package like that, it makes it much easier for people to have ready made responses to counter it. And that's when you need to open it up and say, well, it actually is more than just this.
0: You're listening to What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White is here with Will Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University of Buffalo's Graduate School of Education and the owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions, LLC. We'll be back with Will, with more of Will, just after this.
4: This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of November 6th through the 12th. I'm your host and Program Director Tom Barrich. Now part of the SUNY Education Network and currently boasting more than 4,000 full and part time students, Niagara County Community College was founded on November 8th, 1962. November 9th, 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King gives a speech at Klein Hands Music Hall in Buffalo. And 50 years later to the day, on November 9th, 2017, Toni Morrison gives a speech at Klein Hands, observing the anniversary of that event. November 10th, 1931, construction of Buffalo City Hall is completed. The historic building and its striking appearance on the Buffalo horizon has been described as a form of Art Deco. It's also been described as Babylonian, and the architect himself, John Wade, simply referred to the design as, quote, Americanesque. And one more here, taxes were introduced to the village of Buffalo for the very first time on November 11th, 1816. And they've been going up ever since. You've been listening to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich.
1: Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two... Sounds great,
4: let's go. The podcast world is
1: overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from.
0: But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplified BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario,
1: our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone.
0: Listen to the best independently produced podcasts in the region, anywhere, anytime.
1: Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. Where do you go when you want news you can trust? WBFO, of course. And when you just want to catch up on the day's news, you can go to the WBFO Brief Podcast. Listen to the WBFO Brief every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you can always stay up to date with the news you need. Attention,
0: parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and
2: videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using Next at wbfo.org. Together we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station.
0: And we are back with Will Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education, and owner and operator of Tremani Studios, LLC. Will, talk to me a little bit about your work uh, with the Leaders of Color, Cohort 3.
3: Okay, so Leaders of Color um, was started by the Oshai Foundation, uh, Karen Spaulding. She actually began it, and I think it's called now the Karen Spaulding Leaders of Color. Um, and essentially what it is is a program that identifies uh, leaders from Buffalo, New York, who are black, Hispanic, um, coming from different cultures, and we do like a one-week ret- one retreat. Um, my cohort three is interesting because we didn't have the benefit of going to an off-site. Well, we went to an off-site location, but it was all virtual because of COVID. Right. But it was funny because we were like, they. so Ashai, kudos to them. They kind of put us in a hotel. So after we did the training online, our cohort would kind of hang out at the end of the day, those who were housed at the um, hotel. So we got a really tight-knit group. Shout-out to my man, Brian Archie, who just uh, won his uh, seat on the uh, Niagara Falls City Council. Uh, he's oh, okay. One, yeah, he's one of my fellow Cohort 3 members. Uh, we're doing a lot of good work um, in the community. So what, what did you learn? during that retreat? So I'm going to tell you this, you know, it was, it was interesting because we received a lot of training about leadership, about kind of emotional intelligence, about what it means to be a role model in the community. But I think the biggest thing I got from it was the increasing of my network. Mm -hmm. Right. So doing this work, sometimes number one is hard work in the community. Number two, you don't have a lot of time to connect with folks outside of work, who do similar work, Mm, right? Okay. So I think the best thing that I gained from it is just the tight relationships within cohort three. Certainly when I have things that I need to discuss, I know I can go to them. We got a chat, a WhatsApp chat, WhatsApp chat, or yeah, WhatsApp chat. Um, And when there are events going on, we can rely on each other to support. So I think the biggest thing beyond all the trainings was just that camaraderie among the group.
0: Yeah, and it's, it it seems like from what I've been reading, the Oshai Foundation is really taking a stand on improving the quality of life for, for Eastside residents.
3: Yes, and you know, it's been interesting. Shout out to Mark Scott, because I believe Mark Scott has definitely been a champion of, leader, leaders, of color, leaders of color. He actually replaced uh, Karen Spauld, Spaulding. And he filled that role. And we have a lot of we had a lot of discussions about what it means to be a leader of color, what it means for our community. Um, what are the challenges that we face in the community? What do other people from the community face? And I think Mark was listening, along with the leadership at O'Shai, to say, okay, well, we have these leadership or leaders of color cohorts, but how are we really helping them? And then I think that led to some questions about. Uh, what it means to be black on the east side of Buffalo. What are some of the hyster- historical obstacles to having really a community that is thriving? Um, they looked at a lot of Dr. Henry Taylor's work from uh, UB Urban Studies.
0: Shout out to shout out to the doctor. Yes,
3: and they—I mean, I, my mind was blown because I didn't know they were going to do it. After their strategic plan, they came out and announced to us at a Leaders of Color retreat that. They're going to focus their efforts on the east side of Buffalo and supporting the black residents to make sure that they are fiscally sound. Um, I haven't heard anything like that in all my years of living in Buffalo, nor have I ever heard. One of the leading foundations taking a stance and saying, "No, we're going to put our efforts in here to help these people because if we can elevate them, we elevate the whole city." Yeah. Truly, a revolutionary stance.
0: And hopefully, other organizations, big big companies, and organizations in this in this city can take can learn from what Oshai is doing, and uh, you know, do their part as well. I would hope so. I would hope so. Talk to me about your work. You're owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions LLC. What do you do there? Um,
3: so, I've been I've been uh, running Tremonti Solutions for a long time. Um, it most recently became a company uh, with my LLC in the last couple years. But it's something I had been doing as a passion project. Uh, I started out as a community tutor. Um, families who couldn't afford traditional tutoring. I would do it for 10 bucks (laughs) a meal, (laughs) you know, I mean, because I wanted to give back something to the community. But now, you know, as my professional career elevated and I got access to more organizations and more people, they sought out my expertise and it kind of rolled right into the work that I was doing with Tremonti solutions. Um, Right now, I support school districts, individual schools, when they need help with culturally responsive teaching and education, dealing with issues of cultural and racial literacy. Um, And I actually, it's something that I really am passionate about and something that I really enjoy doing.
0: There's been schools in the news all over the region um, for, you know, these, these acts of violence, um... I don't want to get too specific, hypothetically speaking.
3: How would your company help address these issues? So it's funny because when I was here last year in June, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that Bridget and I talked about was the need for these uh, mental health and social emotional supports for students coming out of the impact of COVID. And I believe also dealing with The incident of May 14th in Buffalo, the racist shooting in Buffalo and just how we would need a ton of support. And here we are a year later. And, you know, this is not just a Buffalo problem. There are issues with students all across Mm -hmm. the country. And what we need is a way to help students process all these things that have happened. I think adults we're tired of COVID. Right. Yeah. And we wanted to get back to things the way they were. But what we forgot is that we are adults, prefrontal cortex, fully formed, Mm -hmm. executive functioning is there. What students missed out on was the safety that consistency provides. When you change the dynamic of school, none of us can ever say, at least in my generation and your generation, none of us could say, I don't remember what it was like for that year and a half, two years where I couldn't go to school. Right, right. At a mass scale. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have students who have this pillar of society one day removed and they say, well, you know what? If you just show up, you get grades here. Everybody did it differently. So you take this away. You take this pillar of society away. And now you got students like, well, if you can just take it away, why does it matter now? Right. And that's a part of the issue that we see now. How I would approach it, we're going to get to the conversation about hip-hop.
0: Yeah. We we got a little over five minutes. (laughs) A little over
3: five minutes. I got you. All right. So I'm a true hip-hop head, right? We celebrating 50 years of hip-hop this year. They say 1973. I was born in 1974, so hip-hop isn't, you know, my parent. It's my older brother or older sister. Same. Right? Yep. And... I've always been intrigued by the elements of hip-hop. And traditionally, we talk about four elements of Mm hip-hop. MCing, DJing, breaking, writing, or graffiti, right? And if you look at that, those are elements of a culture. Yes. One of the elements that we don't often hear about is this element of knowledge, right? And for what it's worth, what we have right now, one of the elements of hip-hop MCing, is still... Uh, well it's changed the world right Mm -hmm. so rap music has changed the world but we're taking emceeing away from all of the cultural elements knowledge is the key cultural element because if it was not for the youth gangs of the south bronx coming together and forming a truce because of the murder of a very prolific individual black Black benji Benji. black benji ghetto brothers shout out to the ghetto brothers Shout out to my man Topaz, South Bronx. If it wasn't for these young people at that time coming together, and we're talking about gang members, 40,000 gang members in the South Bronx, coming together and forming a truce, saying that our lives are too valuable in honor of Black Benji and his mother's wish to stop the violence, you would not have DJing and MCing and graffiti writing and breakdancing, elevating to the point that it becomes hip hop culture, right? Yep. So if we can take advantage of this culture, if, the, if that culture could save black youth in the late 70s and mid 70s, mm-hmm. then it certainly can save them now. It certainly can save the world now. So I would be looking to implement a program that takes advantage of the five elements of hip hop.
0: What are some of your favorite albums?
3: Oh, man. Ooh, you got me right there. (laughs) See, I told you, I'm one of those people that don't really have a favorite, but I'll go back in my mind and think about it. Like, first of all, my favorite, like the, the hip hop song that turned me on to hip hop, right? Everybody says it's the party joint, right? Hip to the, nah, not for me. I remember as a kid being enthralled by the message.
0: Yeah, right. the message. The message. It, yeah, in comparison to "Rappers Delight" by the Trigger Hill Gang, yeah, just diametrically opposed.
3: Right. Well, the you know "Rappers Delight" was a nice party song. Oh right? yeah, everybody yeah. could dance. But the message. I mean, the name says it all. The message. It's the First conscious. Yes. Record. Yes. And it, it even I can't even remember when that song came out, but I know I was young. Eighty two. Eighty two. That was my my year of birth. I wasn't even ten years old, but that song stuck in my head. Because of the vivid images about what the song was about, so if we go down that path now, don't get me wrong, heavy run DMC head, mm-hmm. uh, BDP, uh, Boogie Down Productions, I think that album. So I don't never listen when i grew up we didn't i didn't have money to buy albums <laughs> so i never <laughs> knew the names of albums or songs right i just knew the song because i heard it on the radio shout out to buff state w b n y you stay up late yes. on sunday night and you just push record go to sleep and you wake up with some fire <laughs> you know um so not a no favorite album but artist man artist
0: we've got uh about a minute left the last thing i want to ask you real quick what's next for you
3: What's next for me is to really try to amplify, um, you know, this five elements of hip hop to create a system to change the way students are interacting in schools. Um, I think that's absolutely what's needed. Uh, I think we don't do hip hop justice. You have some teachers who implement elements of hip-hop in their class. Oh, make a a hip-hop song about math. I think we're missing the boat because it can be a tool for social-emotional intervention. It can be a tool for academic intervention. intervention. It can be a tool for creating culture within schools that is respectful. So that's really what I'm looking to do in the future.
0: And thank you for listening to What's Next with our guest two-time, guest, Will Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement for the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education, and the owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions LLC. Will, thank you for being on with us.
3: Thanks for having me. Pleasure.
0: And you're listening to WBFO News and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN, Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.